if you'd open up to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and our need for him. I pray, Lord, we would learn from these passages what you want us to see and apply. I pray, Lord, you would be my strength and my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 11. Today I've entitled the message very simply, The Kingdom, A Kingdom in Turmoil. A Kingdom in Turmoil. And we have been looking at the story of 1 Kings, and we've seen the reign of Solomon. And now we have come to the end of Solomon's, coming near the end of Solomon's life, and we're looking at his son, Rehoboam. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at starting, we're going to look at several scenes. We're going to look at seven scenes that are going to help us look at the narrative, scene by scene by scene. And, and what we're going to do this morning, the last time we were together, we saw how one of the consequences of Solomon's life and the idolatrous choices and how he had embraced not only riches, but he embraced women. He embraced not only immorality, but he, based, he, he embraced political power. And all of these types of embracings and what he clung to was contrary to what he once had loved. And as a result, there was many consequences that came in his life, but one of the direct consequences that we see are the enemies that God raised up, the enemies that God raised up that would come against him. And the final enemy that's listed amongst those three is a man named Jeroboam. The first scene that we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see how Jeroboam surfaces and we're going to see the prophecy of his kingdom. Jeroboam surfaces the prophecy of his kingdom. This is going to be in chapter 11 from verse 26 down to verse 39. And what we learn is that here is a man that surfaces named Jeroboam who is going to be a key leader in Solomon's dynasty near the end of his life. And in the very beginning, look at verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite of Zereda, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious... He gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Really, really, really fascinating. You know, I, I was reading a lot of resources on this, and one of the fascinating reminders from the past is when you get through the book of Judges, in the book of Judges in chapter 20, you see this civil war taking place in the nation, and you see that the northern tribes coming against Benjamin. And one of the mistakes in retrospect that Solomon makes is he takes an Ephraimite and he takes a man and this guy was a gifted individual. He was gifted. He was very able, very industrious. He had a lot of skill. 
and he was a servant. And this would be the man that God raised up to be one of the consequences to Solomon. This would be one of the people that was going to, and we're going to see how he becomes the king of the north. So when we look at this storyline, if you've never been with us and you're trying to fit it in your mind as to where we are in the Old Testament, you've got three kings in the nation of Israel that are in a unified monarchy. And you have King Saul, you have King David, and then you have King Solomon. And what we're seeing today in the storyline is that through the sin of Solomon and through some of the consequences that God had said would take place, the kingdom is going to divide. And what's going to take place is you're going to have ten tribes in the north, and you're going to have, as the scripture refers to it, as one tribe, or in other cases, Judah and Benjamin, two tribes in the south. And so if you've got the nation of Israel up here at the top, you've got the kingdom of Israel. In the bottom, you've got the kingdom of Judah. In the top, you're going to see a man named Jeroboam become the leader. And in the bottom, you're going to see the south. You're going to see the son of Solomon named Rehoboam leading there. And this is going to start a cycle of, of, of great futility. And what you're going to see over the course of this, and many of you have learned this in Sunday school, you're going to see 20 kings, with Jeroboam being the first of 20 in Israel, in the north. And guess how many godly kings are going to come out of that? A zero with the lid kicked off, right? None. And then there's going to be in the south the first king named Rehoboam. And out of those 20 kings, there's going to be eight godly kings. Eight godly kings, but this is the beginning of the cycle. Jeroboam surfaces, an able, industrious man, and there's a prophecy that we can't miss. And when we read that phrase, the millow, we're talking about um, the citadel. We're talking about a fortress, a terrace is what the word means. And, and so he was pivotal in building that, and, and he was a part of it. He closed up the breach of the city of David. So, so he sees this man, he is interested, and he thinks, hey, this would be the guy that could really help me. Well, he doesn't understand. Look at verse 29. At that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel." Isn't it fascinating that in the Old Testament, prophets often did very descriptive acts that demonstrated the plans that God had. And here we see Ahijah, he's got a new garment, not for long. That new garment gets ripped. And literally the visual picture of what is taking place when Jeroboam receives 10 pieces of that garment is a visual and a prophecy that he will take ten tribes and lead the north. There it is. And one thing that, that, that's important to begin to see here is that 
God's word is sure. When the word of the Lord comes, it is sure and it can be taken to the bank. It is going to take place. It is going to be fulfilled. And and that's important because God never lies. You can take God's word to the bank. You can believe it. You can trust it. It's something we need to be reminded of today. And, And some of the resources that I looked at here, I was so encouraged because you know, one, one commentator says, the, the word of the Lord delivered through Ahijah decisively shapes the history that follows. And from this point on in Kings, the word of Yahweh is fulfilled at every turn. You see this in 1 Kings 13, 1 Kings 14, 18, 1 Kings 15, 29, 1 Kings 16, 12, 1 Kings 16, 34, 1 Kings 17, 16. And he goes on here, and this man says, By the word of Yahweh, dynasties rise and fall. By the word of Yahweh, barren widows become fruitful, and their stores of food are not exhausted. By the word of Yahweh, arrows find chinks in armor. By the word of Yahweh, the price of grain tumbles overnight. By the word of Yahweh, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. If the word of Yahweh, this man says, is so effective in bringing destruction, the same word will preserve the house of David forever. Amen? It's the word of the Lord. This morning, it's not the words that I have for you that mean anything. It's the word of God that that speaks. It's the word of God that's authoritative. And this morning, just as we are reminded of Ahijah's prophecy that came from the word of the Lord, may we always yield, submit, and honor, and worship at the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord will come true because God has spoken it. And here we are, and and, and the word of the Lord has been spoken So when we look at this, when we see the surety of the word, it's a very important situation. And and notice something, as he goes on and speaks, and if you look at verses 33 of chapter 11 down to verse 39, you're going to see why this was to happen the way that it did. Now focus with me, because what we see at the end of chapter 11 is absolutely pivotal. At the the end of chapter 11 and verse 39, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. Why? What is the this he's speaking of? He's speaking of verse 33. They have forsaken me in worship. And look at all the gods that's mentioned in verse 33. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. But look at verse 39. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But the last three words are pivotal if we're going to understand the gospel. But not forever. But not forever. There's a reason when we go to the gospel of Matthew and we read in the opening verse of the gospel of Matthew the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
You see, you could be reading in 1 Kings at this point without a knowledge of the New Testament, and you could say, wait a minute, how can it be that Jesus Christ is the son of David? Because at this point in the history of the nation, the son or the people of David are in much turmoil and under much judgment. Why? Because David's son Solomon had been disobedient to the blessings and the cursings of the law. Really, from Deuteronomy 28, he had been disobedient to the word that God had given him. And what took place? They are facing the reality that this glorious unified kingdom has now been dwindled down to that which is only of Judah and Benjamin. But dear friend, today, see the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our consequences, the only hope we have is not through our obedience. It's not through our consistency. It's through the grace of the greater son who comes through the line of Judah. Amen? And who is this son? The Lord Jesus Christ. I love this because there's all these hints. We happen to watch, you know, again, I liken it to a trilogy. Um, if you're watching a trilogy and you happen to watch movie three, before you watch movie one, you can't watch movie one with getting hints about what's coming later. You can't watch episode four of Star Wars without thinking about Return of the Jedi. You can't see what's coming. You see what's happening. You see in the storyline these little bitty pictures of something greater that will appear. Jesus Christ is that son of David. I, I love this. If, if, I, if it were me, um, if I were you, I would write down, and if you're, if you're somebody who writes in the column of their Bible, some people like to do that. Some people are horrified to do that. You can buy a new Bible every year for about $40. I'd go for it. The, uh, in, in, in 1 Kings 11.39, in the column there, I would put Y, question mark, and I would put Genesis 3.15. I would put Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And I would put a passage, Genesis 49, verse 9 and 10, when there's a prophecy of Judah, and there's a prophecy that Judah in verse 10, that there would be Shiloh that would come from the line of Judah. The line of Judah, there would be Shiloh, which is a reference that speaks to Messiah. And it says in verse 10 of Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him or until Shiloh comes. And listen to what is forecasted of this messianic figure. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God had made a promise to David. Another reference you could put in your margin there is 2 Samuel chapter 7. That God made a promise with the house of David. God promised David there would be one that would reign on his throne forever in his line. And here we are. Things look bleak. But be encouraged. The grace of God is lurking in the background. So scene one, we see Jeroboam on the scene. We see Ahijah rip the garment. Ten pieces go to Jeroboam. It's a forecast of what's to come. What's scene number two? Scene number two is going to take us only in four verses. 1 Kings 11, verse 40, to 1 Kings 11, verse 43. And here we see Solomon's pursuit of Jeroboam. 
and we see Solomon's death. In verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. Things have come off the tracks a little bit in Solomon's life. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. What do we see happening here? We begin to see some, some really remarkable things begin to happen. Solomon sees Jeroboam as a threat. Solomon passes away. And now we're going to see the kingdom begin to unravel further. One thing that will help us, I believe, and one thing I learned this week that I did not know before in studying in many sources, there's some fascinating parallels between Jeroboam and David and Jeroboam and Moses. I want you to think about these because it doesn't go the way you initially think. It appears to be this glorious person that is going to follow the Lord in the spirit or in the sense that David and Moses did, but it's not the way it works. And you might be like, like I was, and what are these similarities? Well, it's interesting. It's similar because like Saul and David, Jeroboam is a valiant warrior. This one source says, Jeroboam faithfully served Solomon, David faithfully served Saul. Jeroboam meets a prophet from Shiloh who tells him he will be king. David is anointed by Samuel, a prophet who grows up with Eli and Shiloh. Ahijah symbolizes the tearing of the kingdom in the way that he forecasts Jeroboam's rule. Similarly, the kingdom taken from Saul is symbolized by the torn robe of Saul. Another one, once Solomon finds that Jeroboam has been designated as his successor, what happens? Saul attempts several times to kill David. And then we see in chapter 11, verse 38 and 39, the promises given to Jeroboam. And let's look at those promises. 1 Kings 11, 38 and 39. In chapter 11, verse 38 and 39, it's very fascinating. God lays it out here. And what we read is, and if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. You see, Jeroboam had some amazing promises. Even as verse 36 of chapter 11 promises, yet to his son I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. We see Jeroboam giving some amazing promises. And these amazing promises remind us of some similarities of David. Another portion here that I think is important to see because it's going to come into play. It's interesting because Moses led his people out from slavery under the house of Pharaoh. And in a lot of ways, what you're going to see about Jeroboam is he's going to lead Israel out from slavery under the house of David, under the bondage that David's bringing through Solomon and through Rehoboam. And what we're going to see is as God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to accomplish all his will, God will harden Rehoboam's heart. And this will precipitate what the will of God is. And what you begin to see is the exodus will take Israel 
towards a new promised land, but they will soon be led off their path as Jeroboam is transformed into Jeroboam as Aaron. This is fascinating to me. Because what we're going to find is, unlike Moses, it appears to be many similarities to Rehoboam. Or to, you, you see these similarities of Jeroboam, and you see these similarities to Moses, and you see these similarities of Jeroboam to David. But what we're going to find is Jeroboam is not like a Moses. He's not like a David. And in fact, he's going to participate in the very same idolatrous things that Aaron did at Mount Sinai. And he's literally going to be looked at like he is providing rescue from the bondage of Rehoboam, but he's going to lead him into the wilderness of idolatry and disobedience before God. So here we are. Jeroboam flees. Solomon dies. Now we get to scene three. What's scene three? Rehoboam, the harsh king. Now let's look at the son of Solomon. And let's look here and what happens. Rehoboam in chapter 12, verse 1, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Shechem was a fascinating place. That was where the covenant was renewed after the conquest in Joshua 24. That was where Joseph's bones were laid to rest. But there's an eerily similarity to remember Abimelech was crowned, crowned himself crowned king at Shechem. And Abimelech's not a good memory. Well, now Rehoboam is at Shechem for Israel to come and make him king. And what happens next is really fascinating. They call Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel, and they come to Rehoboam. And look at what they say in verse 4, chapter 12. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. It appears to be going well because the response of Rehoboam is, all right, give me three days. Give me three days. Sounds wise. Give me three days to think about it. Well, what happens next is really sad. He consults the wise old counselors that Solomon had, and, 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 and they basically tell him, yeah, don't make it harder on the people. Well, what's crazy is, is that this is what really fascinated me. Jeroboam has just been told by Ahijah, what? That he was going to get the 10, he got the 10 pieces. He was going to be the king of the north. And what does he do? Jeroboam with the people gives Rehoboam some amazing advice. Jeroboam literally tells him, look, if, if you will lighten the hand, the hard service of your father, we will serve you. Just lighten it. Rehoboam checks with his father's counselors, but then he does something really foolish. He goes to the young men in his life, and, and he's 41 years old at this point, so we, he abandoned the counsel the old men gave him, took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him, stood before him, verse 9, and he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Verse 10, and the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, 
but I will discipline you with scorpions. Sounds like a real fun guy, doesn't he? I mean, he is not out to serve the people. His little buddies that he grew up with think they know it all, and he rejects the wisdom of his father's counsel. He rejects all of it, and what does he do? He's like, all right, I'll show you. I'm going to show you power. I'm going to show you harshness. And things start to get a little crazy. It's really fascinating. Um, And when you read this passage through here, you begin to see the lack of wisdom. The lack of wisdom. In our life, we're either going to seek our own wisdom, we're going to seek the wisdom of God. The passage that Stan read earlier, did you notice that part of the fruit of wisdom is what? Is wisdom is um, pure, peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. It's open to reason. He wasn't reasonable about this. It's full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And and one of the things that you see happening with Rehoboam here, he's demonstrating in real time his lack of wisdom. Wisdom is going to be manifested in my life and in your life. We're seeing that with Solomon. We see it here. Wisdom will be manifested in your life as a boss. You'll demonstrate whether or not you have wisdom in the way you handle people. Wisdom will be demonstrated in your life as a dad, dads, the way you deal with your kids. As a mom, ladies, as a teen, Wisdom is going to be seen in the way you live, in the way you deal with people, in the way you deal with circumstances. It will be demonstrated in your deeds. It reminds me of Psalm 1 where the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that's what he does. He goes to men whose lives are not marked by an allegiance to God. Again, I I, I encourage you, and I, this is precious on my heart because of the ages of my kids. I'll tell you, if you want a pathway to destruction, young men and young women, go after somebody who doesn't have a heart for God. And what you will find is their good looks turn bad quick because their lack of wisdom in their living will not only affect you in the short term, it'll affect your family in the long term. Watch out. Learn from these people. But what we see here also is the sovereignty of God is on display in real time in a beautiful way. Look at verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Whoa. We can talk about sovereignty till we're blue in the face. We can talk about responsibility all we want. But this is an amazing opportunity to see it happening in the mystery of real life. And we learn some amazing things. One, one commentary said this, and this, was, this is pivotal. The gentleman said, There are many human decisions to be made, but God's decision is being carried through. This morning, do you believe that in your life? There's responsibility here. Rehoboam is responsible, but God works. God will bring out his will in my life. He'll bring out his will in your life. This is not fatalism. This is not robots. 
This is the mystery of how God works sovereignly through the, the choices and the responsibility of men and women, boys and girls. And I'll tell you, there's amazing implications here. Do you realize God took the decision of Jeroboam? Jeroboam could have said, I never want to pursue a kingdom. I'll never do it. Jeroboam could have never gone to Rehoboam and given him good advice. Rehoboam went to people, and those people made decisions in the council that they gave Rehoboam that was poor. All and on and on and on and on. You know what the implications are that hit me hard? And God's been teaching me this over the last 10 years. God will put me where he wants me. God will ultimately work. I'll give you an example. I know pastors that have been bitter for years because they went to a search committee and they thought they were going to get called to another church and there was someone on the search committee that didn't want them to do it and they look back and they say, my whole life would have been different if I would have moved to that city and ministered in that church. Well, I got news for you that not to condemn you but to encourage you. If God wanted you in that church, you would be there. If God wanted you to have that promotion, you would have received it. Do you believe the same God who's capable of turning the heart of Rehoboam is capable of turning the people in your life that make decisions that affect you? He's either sovereign or he's not. If God wanted you in that ministry, he would have raised it up. If God wanted you here, if God wanted you with that person, if God wanted you in that job, if God wanted you with that playing time, I'm not being silly. I'm talking about every decision that happens that other people make that affects me, that affects you. I'm either going to be tempted to be bitter at people and circumstances the rest of my life, or I'm going to come to contentment that the good sovereign God of the universe will not only guide his will, working it out through the choices of people, it will happen not only in biblical characters, it will happen in simple people like me and you. That'll set you free. If not, you will face the temptation to be bitter at people and circumstances forever. People that are mad because of what a boss did. People are mad because of what a higher up did. People that are mad because of a person they were in a relationship with for four years and that person messed over their life and never asked them to marry them. People that literally are in bondage. But the problem is, and I tell you this passionately because I've fallen into this trap as a Christian. I found myself tempted to be very bitter at people that have made decisions. And it was the Holy Spirit of God working through his word that brought me to the realization that God is not going to be compromised at the choices of other people. He will accomplish his purposes in my life. And he's capable of turning the hearts of other people. If we can't rest in this, I say this to you. I pray you hear my heart because... Uh, I found myself borderline bitter and frustrated and overwhelmed years ago in my life because of a decision that someone else made. And the more I studied the sovereignty of God, have you ever been in one of those moments where you just the light comes on and there all of a sudden the, the light of God's revelation is in, right on your heart? But it was as hard as it was to receive, it was pure, it was healthy, it was freeing. When I realized, you know what? I don't think I'm bitter at this person that made that decision. I think I'm bitter at God. Friend, realize here 
there's so many things going against what appears to be happening. Jeroboam was walking, minding his own business, yet God raised up an opportunity for him that he couldn't have pursued on his own and brought it about. And I want, to be, I want you to be encouraged. That doesn't negate our responsibility. It doesn't make us puppets. It doesn't make us fatalists. But what it means is this. As we live with full consequences of our responsible decisions, rest in the sovereign hand of God. Don't fight it. Rest in it. But another one here. Scene four, a kingdom in turmoil. Verse 16 through verse 24. You see what's happening in chapter 12. Now it's really getting off the rails because they're like, okay, you're going to be like that? Here's what we're doing. All Israel saw, verse 16, that the king did not listen to them. The people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. So Israel went to their own tents at the end of verse 16. But look what Rehoboam does. And I tell you, we've all acted without wisdom. So it takes one to know one. But doesn't it remind you of the futility of our own wisdom? Rehoboam at this point thinks it's a good idea to send Adoram or Adoniram, depending on the way people look at it in translation. And he sends them. He's the taskmaster over the forced labor. He thought it would be a good idea after he infuriates them to send this guy up there. Well, guess what? I hate, I hate it for it, but it's, it's not happening good for Adoram. What happens? And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. This is terrible. King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And what's happening in 12, 16 through 24? The kingdom is splitting. It is splitting to the point to where Rehoboam tries to get 180,000 men out of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And he says, we're going right now. Let's go. This is going to be Judges 20, part 2. And what does he do? A guy named Shemaiah, the man of God, he comes and he tells Rehoboam and he tells him to stop. He says, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of God. Unbelievable. They listened. They listened to the word of God. You see the kingdom splitting here, and you see the Solomon, wonderful, united kingdom, and the disarray and the sadness of what's happening in the land. You've got... Ten tribes to the north, you got two to the south, you had 180,000 ready to kill their brothers in the north. God stopped it, and you see the disastrous concepts or consequences of sin. Phil Riken says this, see where sin leads. When Solomon first started to commit little sins of luxury and sexual immorality, he never dreamed that he would fall into public disgrace or that God would divide his kingdom, but these were the direct and deadly consequences of the choices he made to commit the sins he loved to commit. Sometimes even a small change in our affections can lead us into serious sin with painful consequences that will last well into the future. In this case, the sins of Solomon became the sins of his people. One man's divided heart ended up dividing a whole kingdom. What will the consequences of our own sin be if we do not repent? Where will our own sinful desires lead us if we do not stop craving money, sex, power, and all the other ungodly affections of a divided heart? I think this is where it would be pertinent because it goes in line with what Jesus said because he always called people to respond to his word, right? He who has ears, let him hear. Let us hear. Let us take heed. 
I pray that we wouldn't hear this callously or just informationally, but that it would humble us. And we'd say, oh, God, would you search my heart? Would you, would you point out any area of my life that's got compromise or sin and, and, and run to him? Because we're seeing the devastating consequences of sin. And, and we see next, scene five, we see idolatrous pragmatism. Idolatrous pragmatism. What happens next is crazy. To paraphrase what happens next, Jeroboam's back in the north, and he starts getting frantic. And he starts thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not fair. I'm in the north with ten tribes, but he may just be one that really surmises two tribes, but he's got the temple. That's not fair. How am I going to keep these ten tribes happy when they're going to need to go on the pilgrimages to the holy place in Jerusalem, to the temple? What am I going to do? And what he does is disastrous. He takes a place up by Mount Hermon, which is Dan in the north of Israel. And he takes a place called Bethel, which is a little bit, it's way close to Jerusalem, just right up the road. North of Jerusalem, he takes Bethel. You know what he does? He creates two false centers of worship. He creates his own holy day in his own month on the calendar, and he creates his own priesthood. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you remember anything God's already told him that would have saved this whole thing? What did God tell him in 11, 38, and 39? Jeroboam, if you follow me, your kingdom will prosper. But what does he do? He knows the promises of God, but his fears override God's promises. Anybody relate? How many of you today are fearful about something? And rather than trust what God's word says, you take that fear on your own and you're going to accomplish something with your fear and figure out another way of approaching your problem. I tell you again, you may think, you may think that I'm coming at you, friend. I, I understand this. I've done it many times and many, many times as a pastor where I've been overwhelmed by fears in my life and rather than rest in the promise of God, I've allowed my, the fear to overtake me. Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves? If he'd have trusted the good hand of God here, what happens? He doesn't compromise. But what takes place? His lack of following the true God, his lack of loving God and trusting his word is revealed in idolatry. And it's a lesson for us today. Because when we follow our own way and when we're not walking submitted to God's way, guess what will always happen? Idolatry. Calvin said something that I heard just a few years ago that is so true. He said, our hearts are idol-producing factories. You know what he's speaking about? We're all worshipers. I met a young man the other day on the walking trail, and uh, we started talking, and, it, and, and, and we talked for a while, and, and, and I was sharing with him God's word, and, and, and one thing that hit me, he, he, he didn't believe in Jesus, and he was, a, he was a really nice guy. I liked the guy. He was very friendly. Uh, but, but it hit me, you know, thinking about just now, uh, are we, all, we, all, we are all worshipers. What are you worshiping today? 
You know, you may be here thinking, oh, I'm not following God. I'll do that later on. But you're a worshiper of something, someone, something. We're all worshipers by nature. And so the question is, are we worshiping that which is of the creation or are we worshiping that which is of the creator? But we see idolatry take place, idolatry that compromises. This morning, I had a lot more to go, but we're going to land a plane. This morning, is your life marked by wisdom? We've been looking at this over and over and over and over. Is your life marked by wisdom? This morning, are you fighting against the sovereign hand of God? It's freeing when you come to the place of saying, God, help me to trust you. I don't think we even, we, 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 we were studying contentment in our Bible study group on Tuesdays. And one of the realities that we learned was we can't have contentment until we trust and, and rely on the sovereign hand of God. You may be like, you know what, I'd be happy if I had a bigger house. I'd be happy if I had a nicer car. I'd be happier if my kid did this. I'd be happier if my wife did this. I'd be happier if this, if this, if this. But contentment flows out of the realization I can trust God's providence in my life. I can rest in it. This morning, are you, is your discontentment with things in your life right now that makes you uneasy, makes you irritated, makes you sort of just higher blood pressure? Is it revealing this morning a lack of the right understanding of God's good purposes in your life? We'll look at this next time more, but finally today, what's your response to God's word? What's your response to God's word? Ultimately, what's your response to Jesus? I I, the last thing I want to read to you this morning that I pray would encourage you is what we find in, in, in all of this section is this amazing backstory of the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. I came across this quote, and, and it blessed me. It says, Though Solomon turns from Yahweh and departs from him, Though Solomon and his kingdom are both torn in two by his double loyalties, yet Yahweh promises to restore David's house, ultimately through another son of David, torn in two in his sacrifice on the cross. This morning, what's your response to the word of the Lord revealed in Jesus Christ? I'm going to read you a couple verses and we're going to stop. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. This morning, are you marked more by disposition of Jeroboam and Rehoboam? It's just not humble before God, and it reveals itself in the way you respond to the truth that God's revealed about Christ. This morning, pray with me. It could be right now that God's calling you to confession and repentance, that the Lord's revealing to you a, a heart that is proud and sure of itself. And this morning, God's saying, look to me, look to me, look to me. What marks, we're going to see it lived out next time, but what marks these men's lives 
is not in their individual accomplishments. It's not in the, the, the certain specific circumstances of their life. What marks their life as good or evil or righteous or unrighteous is ultimately their response to the word of the Lord. And this morning, the word of the Lord tells us in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This morning as we close, may we come before God humbly. God revealed to me, may we have humble hearts manifested in an attitude of yes to the Lord and obedience to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, we see just in these few scenes that we move through in these chapters so far. Some opportunities, Lord, just to look at our own hearts. And uh, I thank you, God, for your word and how powerful it is and how wonderful your truth truly is, God. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, Lord, for, for my fellow Christians. I pray, Lord, for those that may be here that don't know you. I pray today that they would see the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And I pray that they would be so excited to see that Christ Jesus died on a cross for their sin. And I pray today they would trust in you. I pray, Lord, that we would have humble, dependent, trusting hearts in your character and your revealed word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.